Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. was about a year ago, but he has nothing to do with this. Right, why don't you give me his number? You know, Hopper, he has nothing to do with this. Trust Joyce, me. Joyce, 99 out of 100 times, kid goes missing. The kid is with a parent or a relative. What about the other time? What? You said 99 out of 100. What about the other time? Joyce. The one. The one. That's a bit of dialogue from the first episode of Stranger Things, the hit Netflix show whose third season drops on July 4th. In it, a woman named Joyce Byers begs the police chief of her small Indiana town to look for her son, Will, who has gone missing. The chief, Hopper, tries to mollify Joyce with the kind of reassuring statistic that we ourselves might use to soothe the fear of a wild possibility. You know the kind of possibility I mean. The possibility of being randomly shot at a movie theater, or that your partner will get in a car accident on the way home from the store or that your child will mysteriously disappear after playing Dungeons and Dragons at his friend's house, which is what happens to Will. And Joyce is right. This is that one time that the chaos we hold at bay and mostly manage to forget about, the wild, dangerous reel whirling and thrashing just beyond the reach of the streetlights, it's the one time that that breaks in. In this episode, we talk about Stranger Things, and the brilliant essay J.F. wrote about it, titled Reality is Analog, Philosophizing with Stranger Things. In that essay, the real is precisely that which cannot be tamed by statistics and computation. As J.F. notes, in Stranger Things, there is a strange absence of computers and digital technology generally. Will's friends and family stumble on the eldritch horror responsible for his disappearance, with the help of analog tools, and, J.F. argues, that this is no accident. Reality itself is analog. The digital is that simulation of reality by which we parcel out experience into discrete little packets and fit them into a geometrical grid, a procrustean bed of our own expectations. The digital is the world remade for us. In this conversation, J.F. and I discuss what happens when we draw the Joker from the deck, when the trickster decides to pay us a visit, when it's that one time and we find ourselves back in the analog world of the real. It's where we find the starkest terrors, but it's also the place where something new can happen, where anything can happen. All the terrors and all the ecstasies. As J.F. writes, beneath the conceptual overlay of the digital, quote, reality remains what it is, Not an orderly network of humanly consumable objects, but a turbid, ever-changing, symphonic, indefinable process of becoming that is accountable to neither the predilections of reason nor the strictures of logic. The conceptual order having been restored to its place as one element in a pluralistic universe, the real ceases to look like a desert and appears instead as a veritable jungle, full of movement and teeming with strange forms of life. 
One last thing. We have a Patreon campaign going, and we'd like you to be a part of it. We're creating lots of subscriber-only content that keeps our conversations going and takes them in unpredictable directions. If you like our show and want to keep it independent and ad-free, we hope you'll think about supporting us by going to patreon.com forward slash weirdstudies and joining one of our three tiers. The $1 Clear Conscience tier, the $3 Readers tier, which showcases our ongoing writing, and the $6 Listeners tier, which includes both the writing and bonus audio episodes. Anyway, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. If all goes as planned, this episode will drop the day before the new season of Stranger Things appears on Netflix. So we thought we'd do something on Stranger Things. And uh, it happens that I wrote a, uh, like a pretty big, I reread it last, it's a, like it's a long fucking essay. It's about um, 10,000 words. Yeah. I think it's even a little bit more maybe, but on, on Stranger Things, when I was in absolute, I was enraptured by that series when it first came out. So the essay concerns the first season only, but surely we'll talk about second, the second season as well here. And Well, that was like the first thing that occurred to me is to talk about how well your thoughts about the series bore up after the second series dropped. And actually, I think in some ways, the second season bears out much of what you say about the first series. But we can get to that. There are specific things that that were so uncanny when I saw the second series that I was like, well, either they read the essay and are winking at me deliberately, or I was right on. (laughs) So either way, I'm happy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was happy with that. Yeah, the thing that really uh, struck me is when you wrote... The fact that the creatures had, okay, so we're jumping right into it. And we're talking about the Demogorgon, the, the monster antagonist in the first season. Um, the fact that the creature's head consists solely of a flower-like mouth suggests that it is one organ of a greater organism. And that the creature is part of the upside down in the same way as a mushroom is part of the mycelium that remains hidden underground. And I was like, and that turns out to be exactly yeah. right. <laughs> you were exactly right. It's so weird, eh? But that's the big kind of the ontological reveal. Right. Where we understand to some extent what the upside down is. It's a super organism. Right. So here's a question to start with. All right. This is a complex enough argument that to summarize the whole thing at the front end would be both difficult and I think a little hard on the listener. And so I'm thinking maybe we can kind of develop the overall philosophy of it as we go uh, by thinking about details of it, which is actually kind of almost our customary method. But the first thing that I wanted to ask is, okay, where we start off at the beginning, the first part of this essay, you rehearse a notion that I think would be familiar to our listeners, the idea of a difference between epistemological strangeness and ontological strangeness. Right. And epistemological strangeness is sort of like, you know, something is strange or something is weird or something is mysterious 
because we don't know what it is yet. Like maybe we haven't developed the tools of sufficient sensitivity that we can understand these things. But presumably the with the forward march of time and technological development, we will. And everything in principle is knowable given the right instruments. And so, you know, we just don't know yet. That would right. be a kind of a one version of epistemological strangeness, something that's unmapped, but in theory, at any rate, you could map the unmapped. But the other is ontological strangeness, which is something that is not just unknown, but unknowable. It is in itself unknowable. Like that is part of what its essence is. Yeah. Um, and uh, that kind of ontological strangeness has occupied us a great deal in the show. And one of the points that you make early in this essay is that Stranger Things, the first season of it, is a remarkable show for a number of reasons. But one of it is also that it never falls into the trap of trying to explain away its mysteries. So there's this beast, this demogorgon that kidnaps Will Byers, uh, one of the main characters in the series. Uh, by the way, this is going to, I mean, I'm just assuming that anybody listening to this has already watched these shows uh, and is not going to be put off by spoilers. If you are put off by spoilers, you should just shut your reel-to-reel tape machine off right now <laughs> and uh, your analog uh, right. recording playback system uh, and go and watch it. But Will Byers is kidnapped by this monster and there's a weird relationship between the kidnapping, the taking of Will Byers, which is the title of the first episode, and a game of D&D that Will plays with his buddies, Dustin, Dustin, Mike, and Lucas. Third? Lucas. And Lucas. Right. I always forget one of their names. And in that game, they encounter a Demogorgon, which is a very powerful monster in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, and they're unable to vanquish it. They throw a fireball at it, and it's not enough, and it kills them, and blah, 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 and that's the end of the game. And then they all have to go home, and when Will is biking home, he encounters this thing, and this thing takes him. Uh, doesn't kill him. Eventually, I mean, the plot is basically about rescuing Will Byers. That's the primary plot. There's a lot of secondary and tertiary plots, um, and arguably some of those are more important than the basic plot of like getting Will Byers. It's a bit of a Laura Palmer thing, where it is. <laughs> it's totally. the it's the MacGuffin that gets everything moving. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you would feel pretty cheated if at the end it's like, well, he's dead. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. You know, like oh, you, you have to save him. Yeah. And um, we know he's alive right from the start. I think the second episode is when Joyce Byers communicates with him through the Christmas lights. and Which is one of the best oh, that scenes of the... Uh, it's so amazing. It's uh, That scene is so great the, when the lights turn on and her reaction. I, I, I love Winona Ryder in this show. First time I saw it, I was like, well, she's a little over the top. Then the second time I'm like, no, she's right on. She's, yeah. I love Winona Ryder. Yeah. <laughs> so do I. I love her. True to your Gen X. Uh, <laughs> no, I am so, I am peak Gen X. I just like, I remember going to see Beetlejuice when I was about as old as the character of Lydia in that right. film. And I was just like, who is she? <laughs> She's like my dream girl and has remained my dream girl ever since. Sorry, yeah. Helen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a big fan too. So, uh, but, but anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, so. one of the many delights of this show is watching Winona Ryder as Joan Byers. But there's this magical scene where she believes that Will is still 
out there and she can find him, but she knows from the beginning that wherever he is, whatever out there means, it's somewhere metaphysically strange. Yeah. Um, something ontologically weird. Right. And so she knows that he's out there. And so she's willing to try weird things to communicate with him. And so when lights start flickering in her house, she gets this intuition like, that's Will. He's trying to contact me, which, by the way, is exactly the frame of mind that you have to be in uh, to inhabit a magical universe. I, I would also add that it's the it's the universe you fall into when things like this happen to you. Yes. Uh, you start to look for signs everywhere. You become yes. what, what psychologists might call paranoiac or paranoid. Mm-hmm. But what paranoid is, is hypersensitivity to infinite possibility and the, you know, the absolute the, the possibility that any little minor little thing might might help you find your child or whatever. So, yeah, right. I think it's actually a very real, realistic thing they do in that show. The way she thinks yeah. about it and her intuitions are actually, I think, what what I would imagine would happen in a situation like that. And everybody around her, all these people who are stuck in the consensus trance yeah. of rationality. Um, I mean, to his credit, you know, Hopper, the police captain of this small town who at first seems like kind of a thumbhead, um, just kind of very limited person. You realize is actually much smarter than he appears at first and much and cares a good deal more than he, than at first appears. Yeah. But, you know, Joyce has to convince him, but eventually he's convinced, but everybody else, it just treats her like she's nuts, but she follows these intuitions, these signs, these portents, these symbols. And there's a sign where she rigs up this contraption of like Christmas tree fairy lights on his on her wall. And she paints, all the letters of the alphabet beneath each light. And she rigs up a means by which Will can communicate with her from the upside down, which is this mysterious realm that he's been abducted to. Or he's hiding. Actually, the monster somehow has taken him there and yet he's escaped or he's running away from the monster. Yeah, yeah. We never. That's never quite explained how that works. He's in. He's event. in his little uh, private little shelter that he built in the woods behind the house, yeah. and Castle for some Byers, yeah. for some reason he's safe in there. And I love the way they don't they don't they don't uh, substantiate that. They don't explain right. why he's safe there. We just we can intuit. Yeah, this is a, sp- a magical space he's formed for himself, so it can't get him there or it can't get him yet. So he's got a chance of survival, some protection yeah. in that spot. Yeah, and just as the mind state that Winona Ryder has to be in in order to communicate with him and to follow the clues and eventually um, figure out how to get her son back, she has to maintain a state of perfect negative capability, to use Keats' term for it. Uh, She's not reaching after facts and reason. She's not looking for explanation. She's willing to dwell entirely within the frame of what is happening. There's a a scene where that's perfectly illustrated it's in the trailer i remember seeing this and like oh my god these people have read maya sue <laughs> <laughs> so she goes to see hopper when will goes missing and she's telling hopper that her son's gone missing and hopper says he's not too worried about it he says 99 times out of 100 mm. when a kid goes missing the kid's with a parent or a relative and she responds with what about the other time and she, he's like, what? He's like, what? He's like, the other time, the one time. Mm. That's negative capability. It's that yes. probabilistic thinking won't give you reality. It just gives you an idea of reality. But An approximation. But, 
Yeah. Um, so what I write in the essay is that this capacity to envision the one time is a better guide to the real because it's a way of approaching reality that accounts for or, or that acknowledges the infinite possibility of every situation. Probability is based on what's happened before, but it has no force. It has no causal force on what will happen next. So it's because of this willingness to believe that this might be the one time or that every, in a sense, every moment in life is the one time, that life happens in that other time that enables her to find those signs and to follow the breadcrumbs back to Will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The one time... When did Stranger Things come out? Was it 2015 or 2016? I think it's 2016. Yeah, because I know your essay is from 2016. Yeah, I wrote it the same summer, so it's 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what's the big thing that happened in 2016? The big thing. Gee, uh, was it Trump? Yes, the election (laughs) of Donald Trump. And that is a perfect example of how statistical thinking led people away from the real. You know, the mood in the United States, I don't know how it was in Canada. And my impression is the Canadians have been watching the whole unfolding Trump show, sort of like rubberneckers uh, looking at a car accident as they drive slowly by. Yeah, well, I mean, we're Uh, all in in the same position. There's the, the domestic situation. Right. So, so what's, whatever's happening in the house. And then Canadians are always in the position of the neighbor looking in through the window going, what the fuck's going on over there? Yeah. You hear the <laughs> screaming and the plates crashing and so on. Yeah. Oh no, there's a domestic situation yeah, going like, on next door. So it affects, um, it affects us for sure. We were, which, we were, which re- yeah. reminds me of one of the funnier responses um, to Trump that I read some Canadian humor is saying that the uh, Canadians want to build a privacy wall. Right. <laughs> At the border. Yeah. Not a wall like, you know, to keep people out, but just, you know. <laughs> just a nice wooden fence, you know? Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, and everybody was saying this, basically what Hop says to Joyce, which is in 19 times out of 20, yeah. Trump loses. And Joyce would say, what about the one time? Well, it yeah. so happens that the one time was what actually happened. Right. And Donald Trump became president, which was an un- was unthinkable to almost the entire intellectual class of the United States um, because they had... What was that line that you like to quote? You have mistaken the true for the real? Yeah, or something you like have that? confused the true and the real. It's from the epigraph to Dahlgren, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you've confused the true... You've used conceptual thinking to determine what can happen in the space outside of conceptual thinking. Yes. The true is a conceptual category. It's not a category of the real. There, there's a difference mm-hmm. there. And if you yeah, keep, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that the actual probabilistic math was true. Yeah. You know, wasn't a lie, but people couldn't wrap their heads around the fact like, wait, that, that was true. Those yeah. numbers were real. Yeah. But that, that real small R real does not correspond with the capital R real that just, you know, hit them like a hard right hook. Yeah, and, uh, and that they did not see coming. And if there is such a thing as ontological weirdness, if the idea of ontological weirdness is true, that means if the universe is on some level fundamentally impermeable to rationalistic thinking, then you're always making a mistake when you rely on probabilistic thinking. Because the real will always come through. Even if your probabilities bear out, even if your your prediction is correct, some element of it will escape what you thought that result would mean. 
or what you thought that result would translate to in terms of events. There's always something that escapes. There's a part that, that I quote in this too, that uh, William James, just, he says, nature is definable only as an excess. So nature, yeah. what we call nature is just the excess that's always eluding us, always evading, always breaking out of our conceptual frames that we build to capture it. Um, and so it's, in a sense, probabilistic thinking as useful as it can be will never give you the real. It just it just can't by definition. You know, I think that if we were to think uh, demoniacally or, or in terms of personification, that real as excess, the way that the real is always a, an excess, to me is would be constituted in the figure of a trickster god like Loki. Right. That's, and yeah. it's interesting. My friend Frank Diaz, uh, shout out Frank, listener to the show, colleague of mine at the university. He once made a comment to me that Donald Trump is basically kind of like an instantiation of, uh, not of the devil, although that Loki is kind of a devil, yeah. but he's like an instantiation of Loki, this um, force of chaos. He's just a big cloud of roiling chaos. That wants to see things fall apart. That's what Loki yeah. wants. Loki wants yeah. to tear down everything. He wants to burn it down and toast marshmallows in the embers. Right, exactly. Dance in the yeah. ruins. Yeah. Yep. And that's and that's the, you know, so like the real isn't always like fun. <laughs> no. There's a kind of a sense of dark initiation that comes into this. And that's another aspect of your essay that I want to get to. But actually before we, I mean, maybe we get there, maybe we don't. But for right now, I want to jump back a couple of steps. Okay. And say, okay, so this naked, naked of, there's a Freudian slip, <laughs> uh, this negative capability that Winona Ryder <laughs> Uh, that Joyce Byers develops in order to save the day, to save her son, um, is also the attitude of the filmmakers, right? of the Duffer brothers, to their own creation. This is a point that you make early in the essay, that they don't try to turn what is ontologically strange about the world they're imagining into mere epistemological strangeness. That they're right. not just sort of like, okay, it's a mystery for now, but then some authoritative figure is going to come in and tell us what's what. And then we'll be like, oh, I get it. We, we, they had the figure, you know, uh, Matthew Modine's character, Dr. Brenner. He was also, the perfect character. And the comical version of that is the science teacher. The science teacher. And the science teacher does attempt to explain it, but does it in a way that you just know that he's just not aware of the facts. He's not aware of what yeah. he's trying to explain. So therefore well, his that's explanation. The whole, that's why he's a comic character. Exactly. Because his, he's a sweet guy. Yeah. And his sort of cheerful, imperturbable demeanor is always an ironic counterpoint to the roiling chaos and weirdness around him. But you could have easily have imagined the scene where Brenner has captured one of the characters or is questioning. Um, yes. I think he captures, uh, he does capture <laughs> yeah. Hopper. And then yeah. has this like, moment where he can, uh, like you know. The typical James Bond supervillain speech. It's used where, in all movies all the time. It's used in movies yeah. all the time. It's not just, yeah, exactly. You say, see, or, you know, you, there's ways of doing that well. Uh, he could have seen, look, I'll tell you what's going on here. We've done these experiments, blah, blah, blah. No, nothing. He hardly has a line of dialogue, that character. Yeah. He, he's not qualified to talk about what he's brought into the world. He doesn't actually know. Yeah. He has no idea. Eleven knows, but she's sort of almost mute. Yeah. So, uh, so we have two explanations, that quote unquote explanations, but they're framed in a way that makes them necessarily contingent 
and limited. So there's the D&D explanation. The boys refer to their D&D books and read about the Veil of Shadows, which is actually called now in the D&D multiverse or whatever. It's called the, the Shadowfell. And that's basically a, a weird echo of our world, the kind of, uh, you know, it's something with the underworld, whatever. Right. Uh, and then... And then you, so that's the fantasy explanation. So if we go by that, then Stranger Things is a fantasy series. Or we can go with what the science teacher says, which is something about moving between dimensions and something with quantum physics. And then we have a science fiction series if we go with that. But we're never told which one works. And in fact, we know that neither of them really encompass everything that we see happening. So therefore, yeah. we're left without an explanation. So the show is very which is strange. One of the, which is just one of the best things about it. Okay, yeah. so here's my question for you. Yeah. This is where we bring in season two. Did season two mess with that or did it remain true to that or well, somewhere in between? I think it totally remains true to that. I think it's yeah. the only, in fact, there's even less of, even less exposition in season two. Um, the one time where we start to get an idea of what's going on. It's a beautiful show because it shows you the, the usefulness of concepts while also showing you the limitation of conceptual thinking. Yeah, it's true. So about halfway through the second season or a little past that point, they get together, they look at their D&D books and they find the mind flare. And they decide that what they're up against is a mind flare. And it so happens that the Mind Flayer, which is a, dun a monster from Dungeons and Dragons that eats brains, it kind of absorbs people's identities into itself. It so happens that that's a very a good guide for what is going on for this creature that they're facing. Yeah. And it's an invader of worlds, a thing. The Mind Flayers invade different worlds. So they find the right concept at least to be able to – so that they know they're all talking about the same thing. But of course, we know that what they're up against is not an actual mind flare. It's something that's, that exceeds that. But you can see how useful a concept is, but also how all concepts fail. It's one of the yeah. few shows that I've seen that does that. Yeah. Um, it's a very subversive show, like genre subversive, in the sense that it mm. takes all the tropes of a classic sci-fi kind of um, adventure and just upends it all because it, like you said, the Duffer brothers maintain an attitude of negative capability throughout second, the second season. And that was the most impressive thing for me. That's why I loved the second season is that they didn't, I even at one point in the essay, they I say, yeah, yeah they, they didn't ruin they didn't it. ruin their show. No, in fact, they expanded, they dug deeper, they went vertical. What happens between the first and second seasons of Stranger Things is comparable to what happens between um, Freud and Jung. You know, I think that season one, oh, interesting. I, 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 at least in this essay, I interpret season one in fairly Freudian terms. The Demogorgon is part of Eleven, is a reflection of Eleven, is an expression of her shadow. I think that that's, there's ample evidence of that in the show. Uh, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I think that's what the Duffer, Duffer Brothers intended. I'm just, that's just, I think it's a good line of interpretation. So you're in the personal unconscious in season one. In season two, you're in the collective unconscious where you see how that, that shadow of Eleven that manifests as a demogorgon in season one is actually part of a deeper collective organism that involves the whole community and is analogous to Jung's collective unconscious. I'm not saying that Freud and Jung are the keys to understanding this show. I'm just saying there's a, a, a kind of homologous move there that's going on between the two seasons, between what Jung does with Freud and what season two does with season one. It shows you this deeper stratum and this more impersonal and objective stratum 
uh, in season two. Whereas season one, I mean, the upside down is pretty much synonymous with the Demogorgon. But then what we learn in season two is that there are lots of little Demogorgons. Maybe there's one for each person in Hawkins, Indiana. And then they all belong to this uh, more primal, more collective, more objective monster that is uh, the Mind Flayer. You know, it's kind of cool because it's sort of like, okay, if you think back to your experience of season one, you're like, what is the upside down? What is this alternate realm? And the answer to that is that the whole realm is itself like an intelligent entity. Right. Now, you can say, oh, well, shit, they explained it. You know, they explained what it was. It dispels the mystery. But it doesn't really because... It's like this is always an issue that you come up against if you're dealing with things diamoniacally, uh, which is to say working with personification, thinking about abstract forces or things, situations, thinking of them as entities rather than as just like inanimate stuff or something that happened or, or a way that people are or whatever. If you start thinking about these things as entities – uh, it's almost like the royal road into the weird, into this kind of uh, experience of the real as something like profoundly strange. But one of the things about that is thinking of something as an entity does not dispel the mystery of what that thing is. It gives you a handle for understanding its motivation, how it acts, how it how it thinks. Yeah. Um, it gives you some ability to fight it as they do eventually by um, understanding some of the, okay, so like this mind flare entity ends up possessing Will Byers, poor Will. He just goes through the ringer in this yeah. series. And so he ends up being possessed by this thing and his own autonomous will is being eroded bit by bit. Uh, and so there's a kind of a race against time MacGuffin, again, a MacGuffin. Uh, you know, the plot is like save Will again, um, save him before his mind is completely overtaken by the mind flare. Uh, but knowledge of the entity and knowledge that this entity has infected will and knowledge that there's certain things about this entity. It doesn't like heat. It likes it cold. It wants to take over Hawkins and it's using will as a kind of a cat's paw to do it. These are things we know about the entity, and knowing these things gives us tools to fight it, as they do eventually, by driving it out of Will's body with heat. And Will is able to impart the message that in order to really fight this entity, they have to close the gate, um, which uh, you describe wonderfully in your essay as yonic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this kind of like nightmare vagina um, that, I mean, almost a literal womb of creation. Right, you know, which I think um, relates easily to Eleven's situation with her mother and all that. Um, oh, I think all sure. that I stuff think is of that. packed in there. You know, shit gets Freudian. But the thing is that knowing all of these things about the Mind Flayer doesn't actually tell us very much about it. No. Like, it remains a kind of blank space at the heart of the narrative. Because they refuse to insert it into some kind of um, uh, striated genre you know, where things fall into nice, neat slots. The, the, yeah. the series just refuses to get genrefied that way. Yeah. And, they just uh, keep kicking yeah. the can of mystery down the road, which it's, I love. It's the same as Twin Peaks, because in Twin Peaks, you, you get to know a yeah. lot about these entities uh, and how how they can't be defeated. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but they never get explained. 
to make something into an entity doesn't explain it. In fact, it it basically just inserts the central mystery of existence into the thing, which is how does yeah. any how anything becomes subjective, how anything becomes yeah. conscious. Um, so by making the the upside down an organism, um, even that's metaphorical. It's not an organism. Like for example, uh, the demogorgon in season one needs to. We we assume it needs to eat. It's eating humans, right? It, it's got this mouth mm-hmm. and it attacks Barb, and but it doesn't eat them. It stores them in itself. So that the implication, it seems to me, is that when it, when the demogorgon consumes you, you're being digested or whatever inside the upside down. You're just kept in a state of stasis there. And so that tells me that there's no difference between the demogorgon and the upside down. So it's already in a uh, kind of organism, but it's not an organism. Yeah. It's not a, a metabolic organism that metabolizes matter and, and, and shits somewhere, you know, like it's not like yeah. an actual organism. An organism is just one way of thinking about this thing that can help us uh, fight it. Um, but it doesn't, it just doesn't get to the bottom of it because it just, it's not like alien where alien in, in the famous film is an actual organism. It's the most uh, advanced or the most uh, successful conceivable result of Darwinian evolution. You could imagine it is the perfect species, but it Mm -hmm. is entirely within the Darwinian frame of understanding that we get to see what the alien is. And then we get to understand how it's, what its motivations are and how it behaves where it's the opposite in Stranger Things. Um, you'll get a little bit from that sort of thinking, but you never get the whole thing. There's always an excess, yeah. which is why I relate to the Upside Down, not to Loki, which is a great observation you made, but to, um, oh yeah, you were talking about Trump. <laughs> I don't know if we're talking about Trump or the Upside Down anymore, but uh, I, I, <laughs> I associated the Upside Down in the, in the essay with uh, the god Pan, right? The Greek god Pan, who is the, the symbol of that excess in nature. So I want to switch the topic and talk about the 1984 commercial for the Mac computer. It plays a role, fairly important one in your essay. Right. It it seemed germane at the time to talk about the specific historical moment where they set this series, which was November of 1983, which happens to be just a few months before... The first uh, Apple desktop computer was mm-hmm. put on the market. And to me, that was a clue about what the show, at least on one level, what the show is about, which is the kind of shift from the analog to the digital that has happened over the last, uh, what is it, 35 years now or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, so that ad, I watched it because I remember seeing that ad back in the day, or at least at some point I saw it. And then I wanted to talk about that because, of course, 19... 19- How old would yeah. you have been? Oh man, in 1984. I was, I was seven, so I don't think I saw it then. I think I saw it later. Yeah, okay. Um, I would have been 15, so right. I'm a little older than you, right? Which I want to actually get back to is like our ability to actually remember the time that this show narrates. But in any event, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. Right? No, you. that's that's a, that's a that's a big part of it. I think this. I mean, I'm old enough to have known that world. Yeah. Um, but when I was 15. 
which was in 1992, the digital thing had already started. So, uh, oh, indeed. But it was very peripheral to life, to everyday life, like absurdly. Yeah. I didn't get an email address till I was in my 20s. So, I mean, it, I, essentially, you know, I've made this observation before talking to my parents and stuff is that the world they grew up in, which was the post war world, you know, 1950s and 60s and the, 19, the, the late 1980s and early 1990s, essentially belonged to the same ethos, the same kind of life world in a sense. And th there's a big shift that's happened since then, you know, yeah. uh, like you and I could watch Mr. Rogers, just like it's someone in the forties could have watched Mr. Rogers and mm -hmm. all of it would have been kind of coherent. All of those institutions, all that infrastructure was similar, but then, then everything changed from 1995, right? Which is the year that the first internet browser was put out in 1984, one of the mid nineties. And then mm -hmm. everything began to change in a seismic way after that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Right. So 1983, I thought was an interesting year to set this because there's two things that have kind of pushed me in that direction. The first one is the absolute total absence of digital devices in Stranger Things season one. Yep. There isn't a single computer. Even the, the equipment in the laboratory looks like analog stuff from the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, there's no digital. And analog devices are giving an inordinate amount of attention. Yeah. Like telephones and all the things that we don't know Incandescent anymore. Incandescent light bulbs. Yeah. Incandescent light bulbs. A, a, a Pentax single lens reflex camera. Um, uh, ghetto, ghetto blasters. Radios, ham radios, walkie-talkies. Right. I mean, these technologies are important. They're linchpins of the show. They are. They are stranger things. <laughs> they I are argue. stranger things. Yeah, they're, it's true. They're strangers to us, and they are the the objects that are used by the characters to communicate with the other world. Yeah. Um. They're they are magic items in D and D parlance, as I yes. say in the essay. Um. So. That's something that's going on in this show. It's it's about this. And so when I thought, okay, 1983, late 93, early in 1984, you get, in January, you get the launch of the, the big Apple campaign for their Mac desktop computer. And they put out an ad that's about George Orwell's 1984, right? So in the ad, you see all these kind of like, uh, pr you know, these proles working away at their desks. And then this woman with a sledgehammer. All, all wearing identical jumpsuits and all with shaved heads, which, by the way, resonates with Eleven. Exactly. Wow, I didn't think of that, but yeah, absolutely. And then this woman with a sledgehammer. And by the way, and in. and and L, by the way, lives in exactly that same gray, depersonalized uh, institutional world. Like we see L's little cell, like her quote-unquote bedroom that she is in, that Hop discovers when he breaks into the lab um, before he's captured. And it's fucked up. You realize like this poor little girl has just been kept in this windowless gray cement cubicle, more like a solitary confinement prison cell in a supermax prison than a, than a, a room for a child. And so like she's li actually living in the world pictured in the 1984 ad. Exactly. Beautiful. Sorry, I interrupted you again. No, but that's, that's a beautiful observation. But then this woman with a sledgehammer who, who comes into this world like who is she she's some, some kind of athlete have you yeah, seen she the looks ad? Like an athlete yes i watched it uh, for the first time in years just this morning she looks like one of those kind of like victorian feminine symbols of liberty or something you know like yeah. they always picture freem as a, this woman or the, the marxist you know the woman with a hammer right it's like mm -hmm. she's like this communist hero <laughs> 
somehow, so strangely, comes in and she throws a sledgehammer at at the uh, this giant screen where Big Brother is dictating his uh, his his stuff to to the to these proles, and then busts the screen. And then there's a little caption. I mean, the, the narrator comes in and says. He says, on January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. So what we're being told there is that this device, this tool that Apple is giving us, is actually what will free us from the collectivizing, oppressive, atomizing tendencies of these Orwellian forces that are at work in our society. And thanks to apple we will we will be free again we will be able to break free of this of this and it's apple that's proving orwell wrong you know orwell thought this would 1984 would have been like this but then fucking steve jobs came in and found you know the forbidden fruit the the apple they will hand you and you will be able to become as gods and then i thought about that in the context of the show and i'm thinking well what is this show really about and then the thesis i developed was that the show is about i don't want to say what we've lost but what we've lost in a sense since the digital revolution is uh um the digital revolution what it has what it has done in fact is it has given primacy to a way of thinking that is one step removed from the embodied existence that people were just forced to live in back then. So we're li- like, it's almost like we've moved one step away from reality. Like mm-hmm. we, we've, we've ensconced ourselves in a world of representation, whereas before we had no choice, but to be in a world of what James calls things in the making. So it's a couple of different directions we can go in, but fuck it. I'm going to choose one. Uh, I want to get back to that Apple Super Bowl commercial featuring the Macintosh computer. I've been playing it silently and scrolling through it and noticing a few things about it. Okay, so the woman with the sledgehammer, we see running in. Okay, so we see these proles being herded into a big central, almost like an auditorium where they see a screen with Big Brother intoning whatever he's intoning. And we see this woman running. And the woman is very interesting to me, just visually. She looks like a figure not from 1984 George Orwell but very much from 1984 like in America right and in particular she's she's wearing athletic gear very 1984 athletic gear like this period in the mid 80s is it's right around the you know a kind of unheralded revolution it's like the the origins of modern athletic gear things like Nike shoes and um, Adidas and yeah I've, And it's this period of time where not only are people's lifestyles changing and people are getting into exercise, uh, but also there's a whole industry of athletic gear coming into existence. And it's athletic gear that is optimized for the kinds of activities that people are beginning to perform. And so I see this woman breaking into this uh, commercial and it's almost like, uh, like, (laughs) like some postmodern thing where like a character from a Nike commercial somehow escaped the Nike commercial and found herself in an Apple ad. Yeah, exactly. She went to the wrong set. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she's wearing modern running shoes, white socks. Um, Yeah. 
you know, like some kind of like polyester-ish, nylon-ish fabric. Synthetic, a synthetic Synth- fabric, yeah. Yeah, synthetic fabric that's sort of shiny and cut exactly the way athletic shorts of the times were cut and a close-fitting white sleeveless top. So that's an interesting little bit of contemporary realism breaking in on. It should also be mentioned that uh, 1984 was an Olympic year. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. But also, like, she's wearing red shorts just on a purely visual level. It's this one little splash of red in an, a monochrome gray field. Everything in this commercial is monochrome except for her shorts. Right. And what, what, what's happening on the level of visual storytelling here? We are being told a lot about a lifestyle, about the, yeah. the kind of person who rebels against an institutionalized and mandated conformity. Ultimately, this is a revival of what Thomas Frank calls the countercultural idea. Now, Tom Frank has written, is probably best known for a book he wrote called What's the Matter with Kansas? And he started off, he's a sociologist who was the editor and founder of a magazine called The Baffler, which is a uh, yeah. Full of sort of Mencken-esque social commentary, very pointed, um, often very amusing to read. And Frank himself is a kind of Mencken-ish social critic. My favorite writing of his, he wrote a wonderful book called The Conquest of Cool that in many ways kind of gave me the idea to do the work in graduate school that eventually fed into the book that I did publish, Dig. His idea of the countercultural idea really impressed me because he was taking an idea that you didn't even know was an idea. It's just like cool people or people who are hip or people who are sort of countercultural, thinking of that as some kind of ineffable, I don't know, je ne sais quoi, some aspect. Some people are just hip. Like Bob Dylan is just hip. It's just who he is. He's just this kind of mysterious, he has this mysterious way about him. Um, and that's how people talk about those aspects of personal style. And Thomas Frank, by putting this on the level of ideology, of idea, and saying, no, there's an actual idea that is impelling these various ideas of subjecthood. Right. You know, you know there's an idea of being a countercultural person, a rebel, a dissenter, the kind of person who would hurl a sledgehammer at Big Brother, you know, the kind of person who's going to buck the system. Like, these are ideas. He's like, there's an intellectual history to hear. Now, he didn't actually get that deep in the intellectual history. And so far as he was concerned, it all came from the 60s. And then, you know, that's not true at all. There's this much deeper intellectual history that goes back to the early 20th century. And I write about that in my book. But, or even the 19th, yeah. Or even the 19th. And yeah. talking about the Bohemians of uh, Henri Muguer and, and so on. But, like, the point is, however, and he wrote a wonderful essay that when I read it in the 90s, it really blew my mind. It's called Why Johnny Can't Descent. And this was published in uh, an anthology of Baffler essays called Commodify Your Descent. And there's another idea that Frank developed that works very closely to the idea of the countercultural idea. The countercultural idea basically is the idea that life is, in modern societies, inherently unfree. And that unfreedom is to be met with an ethos of aesthetic creation, either of art, of creating like, you know, music or what have you, like rock music, uh, or creation of the self. In fact, it ends up being an ethos of aesthetic self-cultivation. But it is an ethos of aesthetic cultivation that is very much in line with this idea of unfreedom, that society 
is like this vast machine for processing us into kind of almost sort of like a machine that processes meat patties for Wendy's or something, you know, pressing us all into a uniform shape. And then your job is to be a creative person who rebels, who breaks out of the mold. The On the level of visual storytelling in this 1984 ad, creating this blank monochrome field that is broken by this kind of winged goddess of victory sort of figure in red shorts, like that one bright point of color in a monochrome field. On a purely formal level, that is an idea that was actually developed within what I call hip culture. You can see it in Reed Miles' album cover designs for the Blue Note Records. You know, if you think about like old Cannonball ad early recordings or John Coltrane's earlier recordings like Blue Train, like that's the aesthetic style, right? And it's being used not only to tell a story of like somebody who's rebelling against the system, somebody who's raging against the machine, somebody who is daring to strike a blow for nonconformity and personal expression, blah, blah, blah. But it's also doing it with visual signifiers that combine aspects of cultural history of counterculture on a formal level, but also uh, is suggesting a new kind of person. You know, a kind of right. person who has fly gym gear, a kind of person who wears Nike, that that is going to be the way that you fight the system. And this is a second related concept that Frank calls hip consumerism, which is the idea that it's if it's a system of culture that's molding us into these uniform meat patties, then it's culture that is going to save us. And so, like, if we are enmeshed in a kind of stifling conformist culture and we're all watching leave it to beaver on t on our black and white tvs or something um then it's going to be embrace of some kind of insurgent rebellious culture that's going to allow us to break out of that and so nike's famous slogan just do it is actually an articulation of a kind of hip consumerism where it's sort of like the, the culture you consume, the products you consume, that is what's going to make you a rebel. That's what's going to allow you to break out of the system. So it's a way that capitalism or neoliberal capitalism has of selling us rebellion and making us believe that it's precisely by participating in consumerism that we are somehow going to break out of consumerism. And I want to read you a passage from this essay by Tom Frank, uh, Why Johnny Can't Descend. He talks about the origins of it with the beats. As, as I say, I don't think that that's the origins of it, but whatever. Um, he's not wrong when he associates the countercultural idea with, for example, Allen Ginsberg's Howl. He says, when Allen Ginsberg first read Howell in 1955, the, the patriarchs of our fantasies recoiled in shock. The Gap may have since claimed Ginsberg and USA Today may run feature stories about the brilliance of the beloved Kerouac, but the rebel race continues today regardless. With ever heightening shit references calculated to scare Jesse Helms, talk about sex and smack that is supposed to bring the electricity of real life and ever more determined defiance of the repressive rules and mores of the American 1950s, rules and mores that by now we know only from movies. And so he's talking about how the enacting of rebellion, it just becomes like this kind of ritual display where we're always trying to recapture that glorious moment of transgression when Allen Ginsberg read Howell and the patriarchs of our imagination were shocked, shocked, um, Except that he's saying basically 
the patriarchs of the neoliberal capitalist order are not being shocked. They want us to consume quote-unquote rebellious or transgressive art. And he says, but one hardly has to go to a poetry reading to see the countercultural idea acted out. Its frenzied ecstasies have long since become an official aesthetic of consumer society, a monotheme of mass as well as adversarial culture. Turn on the TV and there it is instantly, the unending drama of consumer unbound and in search of an ever-heightened good time, the inescapable rock and roll soundtrack, deadlocks and ponytails bounding into Taco Bells, a drunken swinging camera epiphany of tennis shoes, outlaw soda pops, and mind-bending dandruff shampoos. Corporate America, it turns out, no longer speaks in the voice of oppressive order that it did when Ginsburg moaned in 1956 that Time magazine was, quote, always telling me about responsibility. Businessmen are serious. Movie producers are serious. Everybody's serious but me. And then Frank writes, nobody wants you to think they're serious today, least of all Time Warner. And I'm kind of getting into this because in your essay, you talk about like what changes after 1984. It's like the eruption of the digital, but not just the digital in a narrow technological sense, but also what the digital means, a digital conception of reality that increasingly estranges us from the real, which I totally buy. But it's interesting to me that at the same time, something else is coming into being alongside it and actually inextricable from it, is that that rhetoric of the Apple computer ad from 1984, that computers are agents of liberation. And that kind of pseudo-transgression, like you write about how there's a kind of more than Orwellian surveillance that's enacted by modern computer technology that makes this 1984 ad rather ironic, But it's also the ascent into cultural power, like the people for whom this ethos of rebellion, of of permanent revolution of culture, the degree to which those are the people who rule our society. I mean, the people at Google who attend Burning Man in the summer and who are writing the code of the machines that are surveilling us constantly. There's a, a kind of a meeting of these two revolutions, the digital, and it's not a mainstreaming of counterculture. You know, people like to talk about this as co-optation. I actually think it is an idea simply coming into its full power, an idea of the modern that finally has simply worked its way from the margins to the center where it was always aiming to be. It is finally where it was always going to be. Exactly. It's a, it's a consummation. Yeah, it's a consummation. Those two things, the digital revolution and that kind of um, the, uh, well, the, they're the counter-cultural same ethos, they're, they're intertwined, yeah. They're the same thing because what Marx's writings about the commodity are interesting because mm. the way he talks about commodities is the way William James talks about concepts. So a concept is a discrete unit of intellection. It's a discrete unit of data that you – project onto an object. And then essentially what you're doing when you use concepts is you're reducing objects to your concepts for them. And that's exactly what commodity markets do. When you buy a shampoo, you're not buying just something to wash your hair with. You're buying a particular concept, a particular idea of what it is to have this shampoo. 
Um, so that's why the same shampoo can be labeled for men and for women. It's got that different name. It's got a diff- different colors, different market branding, but it's the same basic, it's the same liquid in the bottle, right? So, um, and I think that the, the process, it's funny because what the narrator should say in that Apple ad is on January 24th, Apple computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 will be just like 1984 because what's essentially <laughs> happening is that they are, it's the, it, I, I still use the term co-option, although I understand your, your nuancing of that term and your objection to that term ultimately. Um, it, it's that the particular signifiers that came to represent counterculture are absorbed into the machinery of ne- neoliberal capitalism and they're projected back to the viewer. So it disarms them because it was a mistake to ever think that any of those signifiers were where the counterculture resided. If there is a counterculture, it always resides in those moments of excess where the order of the conceptual fails. Yep. That's where the rebellion happens. And it can't happen. That's why it can't happen through intentional communities like uh, the Bhagwan's community. It can't because an intentional community necessarily bases itself on an ideal and therefore on a concept. On yeah, an it's ideal. right there in the name, intentional. Yeah. Exactly. The intent is an idea and the idea comes to dominate life. And the problem with that is that no single idea can dominate life. Different moments in life call for different ideas. And it's it's precisely this escape from that, that oppressive order of the conceptual over the affective and the lived and the, the, the experiential that is what people like William Blake or, or Allen Ginsberg uh, what Allen Ginsberg calls Moloch in his poem, to me, the way I read it is he's talking about that whole conceptual order. I don't know if Ginsberg th- saw it that way. So but what I'm saying is that the this absorption of the counterculture into consumer capitalism, which is exactly what Apple instantiates, yeah. uh, is the way by which it became harder to think outside of the conceptual order. And the problem with digital is that digital culture epitomizes conceptual thinking. When you're, um, when you're thinking digitally, you're thinking in terms of, of, of ideas, of concepts. So uh, it's harder and harder in the post-1984 world to really be able to think outside the box. It gets harder and harder to, to find an avenue of ideation that doesn't find a predetermined, pre-existing rut or canal that you just find yourself going down. It's like you, it's getting harder and harder to think outside the matrix. And that's because the digital has a stronger and stronger hold on our daily lives, on our everyday lives. A big part of this essay uh, it revolves around a song by Arcade Fire called We Used to Wait. And the song is about a time where People had to wait for shit. <laughs> and yeah. Whereas today, the elimination of that kind of slow time, that dead time, is almost complete. We never wait anymore. Yeah. Uh, you always have a device that can distract you. Uh, but what is going on when you are, instead of waiting in line, you decide to go check, look at your Facebook page or whatever? It's that you're closing off avenues of possible revelation. You're closing off the boredom that might lead you to have a new idea, or you're closing off the sense of the air on your skin in this particular place, or the, the way that person looks at you. Nobody's looking at each other. Like it, it's, it's, it's like, um, that's precisely where the revelation comes to in those, in those moments of waiting. You know, I have 
some love and respect for the beats. I mean, yeah, it's all become very canonic, but you know, like what those guys originally wanted is like to find those moments of real life. The beats were after moments of revelation that they saw bursting out of just quiet moments of nothing in particular. Like if you read visions of Cody, these moments of just piercing lancing beauty where Kerouac is just remembering details like um, an abandoned park in the fall with like leaves blowing around and an empty swing. And, and just in these moments where reality presents itself just nakedly and which I always took to be what Burroughs meant by naked lunch, the, the nakedness of like, what's at the end of every fork. Right. The real. Yeah. I, I like to take walks. um, And recently started to listen to podcasts while I walk. Uh, And as great as that is, because it gives me a a slot in my day where I can listen to podcasts, it has um, made it impossible for me to experience what I used to experience walking, Mm -hmm. which was these little moments of magic, the way those leaves are falling off that tree or the way that might sound flighty and, and, but I don't think it is. Don't tell the listeners that we want them to listen to our podcast. Right. Exactly. Uh, But there's just something about, being kind of finding yourself, as they say in the Arcade Fire song, to become lost in the wilderness downtown. The idea that even when you're downtown, you're in a world of process. Your nature is there. And there, there, you, can, you can be alert to the absolute singular novelty of each moment if you're just present in your body and in time. I mean, it sounds banal, but uh, it's true. Nobody's though. doing it that It may be anymore. banal, but it's totally true. That's, in fact, where I end up in Dig. It's just sort of like I'm yeah. like, okay, so you might be thinking – that I'm saying, well, rebellion is impossible. The machine is all powerful and we're just destined to be assimilated to it. Sorry, right? right? You will be assimilated. And I'm like, no, there are always lines of flight available, but they're not available through shit that you buy necessarily. Although I'm all in favor of shit that you buy. I'm a compulsive buyer of books, but like, but it's not in the, it's not in the book that you buy that you're going to find that, that naked lunch reading naked lunch is not going to actually give you the naked lunch. The naked lunch is just sort of like opening up a tin of tuna and just like, I don't know, experiencing that in a certain way. I end my book by talking about practice. Um, the simple homely everyday business of practicing a musical instrument or practicing anything, practicing, I don't know, watercolor or, um, or some athletic thing or, whatever, but like that practice delivers us back into those, what William James calls intolerable intervals. One of my favorite things that you quote in your essays from William James, sensible reality is too concrete to be entirely manageable. Look at the narrow range of it, which is all that any animal living in it exclusively as he does is able to compass. To get from one point in it to another, we have to plow or wade through the whole intolerable interval. But with the faculty of abstracting and fixing concepts, we are there in a second, almost as if we controlled a fourth dimension, skipping the intermediaries as by a divine winged power and getting at the exact point we require without entanglement in any context. What we do, in fact, is harness up reality in our conceptual system in order to drive it better. And it occurred to me when I was reading your essay or rereading it this morning, of course, I read it before, uh, one definition of practice, what I call practice at the end of my book, might be the willing participation in intolerable intervals. Oh, there's actually a moment that relates directly to that in my piece here, 
where I'm talking about, and this is worth reading, I think. Uh, in the ambiance of our times, it often seems as though only what is representable and communicable is real. This is because the digital absolutizes the intellect by supplanting experience with information. We can see the signs of this shift from experience to information all over the culture, from the widespread belief that no memorable event has really taken place until it's been photographed and shared on social media, to the hitherto unimaginable phenomenon of people shambling into high-speed traffic while absorbed in a game of Pokemon Go. I'm dating the essay here, but... But one of the most compelling signs of the shift involves the science fiction trope of artificial memory. Philip K. Dick used it with characteristic prescience in We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, a 1966 short story set in a future where the memory of, say, a trip to Mars can be artificially implanted into the minds of people who can't afford to travel there physically. Another memorable example occurs in The Matrix, where mm. when Neo uploads the skills of a kung fu master directly into his brain, thereby shirking the intolerable interval of having to learn the martial art through practice. So, your point. Yep. In both cases, the assumption is that experience and information are interchangeable because experience is conceived as a mere configuration of neutral data sets. And that is intellectualism distilled to its essence. What it misses is the fact that in actually going through the motions of traveling to another planet or mastering a martial art, there is a literal infinitude of details, sensations, and singularities that the propositions, I have been to Mars, or I know Kung Fu, could never encompass. Information is an entirely intellectual quantity. In perceiving lived experience as mere information intake, we effectively reduce experience to its infinitesimal computable fraction. Reality is lost in the process. That's exactly it. Oh, it's like yeah. practice is, in, in terms of information theory or thinking of life as pure information, there is no difference between having learned Kung Fu and learning Kung Fu. Yeah, exactly. Everything becomes leveled at that binary kind of like code level where it's, well, the information is the same. The Neo that just got Kung Fu uploaded into his brain is the same as Bruce Lee. They can fight and maybe even, maybe Neo could win. So why would you go through the intolerable interval of attaining some, some level of, of, of capacity in a particular field of, of activity when you can just get it? Well, that question is a viable one in a world that has translated all experience into information. Mm-hmm. But what do you lose when you translate experience into information? You lose everything. 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 <laughs> like literally everything. Yes. What you're left with is a nothing. And that's why in the, in the Matrix, the real is a desert. Welcome to the desert of the real. Line from Jean Baudrillard, they quote in the Matrix. Because on these terms, uh, if you conceive of reality as information, reality is actually a zero. It has no content. It has nothing to give you. It is a desert. Because... It boils down to neutral data sets that have no actual meaning in and of themselves. So, yep. yeah. So, you're, you're, this idea of practice is key, I think. And if it's you the, think, listener at home, if you think this is all very abstract and doesn't relate to anything in real life, I mean, for me as a teacher, this gets very real. Because I remember a few years ago, right around the time this essay came out, actually, the big rage in education was MOOCs. Massive online, uh, I forget what the other O stands for, it's M-O-O-C, it's an acronym for just massively online courses where you're doing all of your work by watching videos on YouTube and doing tests 
and all of that shit can be done online. Now, you can learn quite a bit online. I just managed to fix a, a vent cover in my house thanks to watching YouTube videos that gave me ideas of how to fix this problem. So, hey, I'm all in favor of that, right? You can learn lots uh, remotely. But that whole idea, that idea, by the way, was uh, such a speculative bubble in higher education because for a while, the administrators who run higher education, they love this shit because the managerial ethos is totally bought in on this basically digital idea. Like, get rid of the intolerable interval. Ultimately, life itself is the intolerable interval. Yeah. To reduce all of learning to information and then say like, oh, we don't need to pay professors. We can have a few miserable proletarianized adjuncts being paid $2,000 a course to do a few kind of like low-level technical details of running the class. We can have the genius professor making the content uh, who never has to see any students and you only need a handful of genius professors for the system to work. You can have the money just come rolling in because people don't even have to attend your university physically in order for them to quote-unquote take a class. The only problem is that after about a year, this speculative bubble, this like wet dream of the professional class of university administrators, we can have universities with no actual professors, no books, no teachers, no students. All we have is administrators. We've reached the promised land. It all, it all turned out not to work because the graduation rate in these classes is something like 2%. Because it turns out you actually need to experience something. You need to learn Kung Fu. You can't just have Kung Fu downloaded into your brain. And these dumbass administrators believe the snake oil that MOOCs, which, by the way, so wonderful that, that, that we call them MOOCs. You know, MOOC is like an Italian-American vernacular term for a mark, right? For a sucker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, this this was all about MOOCs right here. But you know? the tendency continues, though. The oh, of tendency course. continues. In a, it, and, yeah, because this is the entire professional class, the entire modern professional class, who, by the way, all of them buy in to this ethos of the rebel consumer. It is the universal middle class ethos, bourgeois ethos now. You could conceive of a university where the prof- each professor gives their class once on video mm-hmm. and then you pay the university to download the class and since it's the same class year after year you don't even need the professor to be alive anymore uh, the professor could just have delivered the material and it's you don't even you know what i mean like you, or you could actually, be like brian oblivion in that david cronenberg film video drum right or like tupac in that holograph show, yeah. that hologram <laughs> show. but, but the, the absurdity and you said it right there that reality is the intolerable interval Reality is an intolerable interval between birth and death. That's what the real is. And it's intolerable yeah. because we can't know it. We can't know it. We can't figure We can't conceptualize it. No concept is compelling enough, as I write there at one point, to make sense of it. So the this managerial technocratic instinct in us that is part and parcel of being modern wants to eliminate that. And in fact, if you look at how the upside down manifests in Stranger Things, it manifests precisely as everything that's left out of the equation, everything that's pushed outside. Like the upside down looks just like Hawkins, but overgrown and in ruins or, mm-hmm. you know, there's like vegetation growing over everything yeah. and there's dust mites floating in the air. And at one point I say that the upside down is the 
the non-human aspect of our human world. Mm. It's the, or what Arcade Fire in their song called the wilderness downtown. It's the fact that even in the midst of civilization in uh, on Times Square, you're still in the rainforest. The forces that animate the displays in Times Square and the concrete that makes the building, the glass, everything still belongs to that primal plane that resides, that, that finds its essence in the concept of intolerable intervals, of, process, of things in the making, of things that can never be finally known. Mm. And so you're always in that wilderness. I mean, that Arcade Fire song is brilliant. At, that, at, one moment, at one point, the flashing light that settled in my brain goes out and I found myself in the wilderness downtown. And that concept of the wilderness downtown just gets to the, the, the thing that even if you're in the most familiar, most knowable and known environment, it just takes a shift in perspective to realize that you're still in that wilderness, in that, uh, that land of unknowing, in that mm-hmm. land of – in, the, in yep. the upside down, right? Yep. Um, I want to read uh, – I want to read this paragraph that you wrote. I wrote, fuck yeah, after, after <laughs> my notes. This brings us to the urgency of Stranger Things, which comes from its powerful political implications, concealed as they are beneath a thick quilt of conventional entertainment. The neoliberal animus against idling, dreaming, and waiting comes from an insatiable hunger to reduce life to manageable processes in a global system predicated upon a doctrine of control. It is this animus that drives much of the information technology sector. And like this sector, neoliberalism is rooted in a way of thinking that predates it by centuries, namely a rationalism which, torn from its imaginal grounding, seeks to restore the sovereignty of human interests by reducing the non-human world to an all-too-human intellection. It is said that through secularism, the devil performed his greatest trick by convincing us that he didn't exist. Well, through neoliberalism, capitalism has effectively convinced us that only it exists and that any imaginable alternative is simply impossible. I would say parenthetically, by the way, uh, a quote from the Marxist philosopher Frederick Jameson, who asked, why is it easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism? Good question. Yeah. Anyway, to continue, it would be naive, I think, to maintain that digital culture plays no part in the chicanery. The problem is that we have lost the capacity to believe in what the creative imagination tells us is possible. If we are to harbor hopes of countering neoliberalism and its capitalist religion, which are well into the process of indenturing billions and desiccating the earth, we need to reconnect with the rhythms and timbres of the non-human. Fuck yeah! (laughs) Boom! man this is such a rich essay i've got more so i mean one thing that i i I sort of like you know like a little i don't know trial balloon that i let up and then have just neglected um is just like the experience of uh what it is to encounter the digital the slow creep of the digital in our lives in real time you know that the land before digital that uh stranger things takes place in one thing, I, one little detail I want to point out, that the digital does start to creep in in the second season. It starts yep. off in a, in a games arcade where they're playing it computer does. games, video oh, games. Oh, and I, I have to point out the one scene that I, that 
it almost convinced me that these that the Duffer brothers had read my my essay. Uh-huh. Is that remember in season one they go to the the tech room? They're like nerds who hang out hang out in the tech room at their school, and they're and all excited because they got a ham radio. They had a ham radio, which is, seems pretty old school in 1983 when you think about it. But they're obsessed with the shortwave radio, and uh, it gets destroyed in season one. When we go back to that room in season two. The radio's gone, and instead, in the background, you have a personal computer, and on the mm. wall is an Apple poster. Mm. Which, so I don't know what to make of that, but it seems to uh, substantiate what I was trying to argue here. That's that, pretty of that dope. switch. I so didn't in the that. in the second season, we have moved into the digital world, and yet at the same time, it's just off in the. Periphery. Yeah. And so I was thinking about, okay, I was born in 1969, which means that in the time that this this story happens, takes place around Halloween, 1983, I had just turned 14. So my age and this time would be halfway between the younger kids, uh, who are about 12, I think, um, and the older kids, Nancy and Jonathan and Barb. Barb and who's the uh, who's um, oh and Steve, um, who right, are all Steve, about right. who are all about sixteen. I was right. I was the average. I was right between them. I was right. fourteen. Um, and so you know when I watch this, like there's an uncanniness in seeing a part of your life imagined with such photorealistic accuracy. And apparently they went to great pains to really bring back the visual uh, the material culture of that time. They looked in old high school yearbooks looking at what people wore. Their costume designers did all kinds of crazy research into just the look and feel of a typical American high school, for that matter, Canadian high school in that time. And so I had that kind of many uncanny moments of recognition watching this. But reading your essay got me thinking like, well, what was the role of computers at that time? You know, it was rich kids that had computers. Yeah. Or... um, Kids were just like maybe not as rich, but nevertheless comfortably middle class who had a very particular interest in this kind of stuff. And I wasn't close friends with anybody who was like super into computers, but I had friends who like were much better off than we were who like they had computers before we did. Like and Commodore 64 or something. Right. And you would go right. over to their house and you would wa- and they'd be like, hey, watch this. And they would like, you know, show you some little nascent computer game. Maybe you'd try and learn it. I was always sucked at trying to learn these things. Um, yeah. You know, the digital started entering my life, my own life through like little gadgets, like a little beeping handheld toy called Merlin, where you could play tic-tac-toe. Oh, yeah. Do you remember Merlin? I remember Merlin. Yeah. I had one. There was a Yoda one too, I think, like a oh, similar really? kind of game t- tablet. Yeah. It's funny. Or or like a Texas Instruments calculator that cost $200, you know. And again, like, you know, the rich kid had the, the really cool Texas Instruments calculator. I don't know if I, – I don't know if I have something to – Related to, I mean, every now and then computers would show up in the schools. Somebody would bring computers into, like when I was in middle school, you know, the Sudbury Board of Education was not terribly wealthy. They had some computers and they would like bring them into your school and you would have a day where they would teach you some basic coding, which for me was unimaginably boring and I could never wrap my mind around why anybody would want to do this. Yeah, Um, same here. (laughs) And of course, you know, it's, it's, uh, that turned out to be the wave of the future. I don't right. know if I have something intelligent to say about this, it's except but to say the slow that, creep of it. 
Yeah. The, the slow creep of it, but the promise of it too. I mean, I remember that this felt so, I got in a little bit into computer. My cousin was really into computers and a good friend of mine too. When I, I a friend that I met when I was, when we were 12, was really into computers. So I got a little bit, I, I joined a BBS, which was a bulletin board oh, yeah. system, which was uh, before the internet. So you would call some dude, <laughs> some guy <laughs> who ran it. I had to call this guy and ask him to become a member of his BBS. And then I could log on to it and download like, I remember this really fuzzy Porn, image of a, of a naked a naked woman. Yeah, exactly. Ah, of course. And, and a whole bunch of- <laughs> The archetypal moment of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and a whole bunch of shitty games that just played with like just characters, you know, instead of graphics, they just yeah. used like just regular like a- characters. X's and O's and yeah, shit. Yeah. yeah. So to me, this felt like, I mean, Rushkoff writes very eloquently about this first wave, right? The early times of the internet when it, it was just this land of promise and stuff. Yeah. But I do believe, I think now looking back at things uh, that- there was a fundamental problem with that that utopian ideal that it basically has its roots in California in the '60s. That kind of techno utopia that came straight out of that counterculture. Um, a fundamental problem with it, uh, which is precisely that it's it was always predicated on uh, supplanting something, on replacing the it's it's to me it's like it, you read norbert wiener and it's obvious right that reality is just a whole bunch of intolerable intervals mm-hmm. that are innately problematic and that the future will do away with all these these gaps and and it will smooth out the space of the real that somehow reality and life will become a smooth surface that we just slide across mm-hmm. and i'm writing about this right now for canadian notes and queries and i'm writing about you know, just I've I spent a lot of time in airports these days. I'm on the shoot, and airports are very weird spaces. I mean, the only real analog I can find, mythopoetically speaking, or mythopoically speaking, uh, to how an airport looks and feels are images of Hades from the Greeks. Mm. Right? Hades yeah. was always vast halls, tunnel like halls with rows of people just moving down them smoothly, silently. Yeah. Um, dry, that's and how- d- dry and echoing. Yeah, dry, echoing, and entirely predicated on enabling and and facilitating circulation, the circulation of the dead through the Mm. the world Mm. and the placing of different souls in their proper domains so that they just stay there. That's how an airport is built. An airport Mm. is not built for humans. An airport is built for phantoms. It's a Mm. spectral space. It's uh, Somebody said that before, and somebody wrote us about this uh, on uh, on email, quoting someone. And I really believe it, that these spaces, these new architectures are architectures of the dead. And in a sense, like in my book, when I talk about spectrality and the spectral age, the spectacle society giving way to what's now the spectral society, it's about this smoothing of life to to rule out or to, to iron out all the folds and the the kinks and stuff so that we can move smoothly from one thing to another without an interval. In fact, what we're doing is we're becoming like ghosts. And to me, just to relate that back to our Garmin Bosey episode, because the idea occurs to me, I see that kind of uh, yearning for ghostliness, that yearning for spectrality, for a smooth space where states follow one another without an interval. 
in a binary way, like in a way that like computers work, uh, comes from the trauma of that we talked about in Garmambosia, the trauma of the bomb, the trauma yeah. of that moment where we realize the absolute contingency of life. And this is kind of an instinct. I think in a way you could argue that the whole of the of post-war culture in the West has been a question of escaping the real, uh, of creating a space where we could convince ourselves that reality could conform to our intellections. And um, and we see the results. So that to me is a problem in that utopian dream that I participated in. I loved it in the early 90s and I still love it. I still think it's it, digital has great promise so long as it's ensconced in a, a more expansive appreciation of the ultimate unknowability of of the real. I find myself becoming congenitally optimistic in these recordings that we do. Um, I, I just got done editing our episode on the net where we're talking about like becoming awake in the dream. You know, the magician is the one that wakes up within the dream and therefore can act within it. You, you know, there's, there's some naive idea that you're somehow going to transcend. You're going to go poof and just transcend into some other realm. Um, I'm not sure that's given to us to do that. Uh, we are in modernity. We are in this digital modernity. We are in these sort of like frictionless spaces. I love what you say about the airport. That's you know, I've never known until this moment why I hate airports so much. But there you go. You just put it work perfectly. It's Hades. It is Hades. But, you know, the thing is that I feel like there's always there's always a line of flight open. There's always a possibility of coming awake in the dream. And I can give you a figure of this. This is my own version of like the, the running shoe clad woman hurling the sledgehammer at the screen in that ad. That little flash of red that is the visual signifier of the possibility in even the most oppressive moment. You know, my version of that, so I remember being stuck in an airport. I was flying back from the UK to the United States, and I was just stuck there for hours and hours and hours, and it was in the wee hours of the night. And, you know, a, an airport feels dead, like a realm of the dead, even when it's jammed with people. But at night, when everybody, the only people left are the cleaners and the unfortunates who are stranded at the airport waiting for a flight that's been delayed or canceled, um, then it really feels like a realm of the dead. And I was just sort of sitting there. I was like, you know... I've got to stay up until the wee hours before I could take my plane, my rerouted plane. And and I just like made a little improvised Zafu, a little meditation cushion, and just sat in the airport terminal. There's nobody around. And I just sat and meditated. And, you know, meditation is the cultivation of intolerable intervals. And somehow sitting in this hall of the dead, like it was probably not the best meditation session I ever had. But allowing it to be what it is, like even that is a little chunk of reality. Right, right. Even that is a little chunk of the real. And they can try as hard as they can to make everything as irreal as possible. The bad news is you can't transcend our reality, our material condition. And the good news is you can't transcend our material condition. When you sit down and, and meditate... I mean, okay, don't even call it meditation. When you just allow yourself to be there, present, open to what is. Um, it can be good, bad, or indifferent, but you are participating in reality and they can't take that away from you. Exactly. There is in Zen uh, walking meditations, right? Yeah, kinhin. The one day I spent doing Zen, uh, we did one of those. Walking is totally a meditative activity. 
I know you share that love too. Walking is the human activity. Walking and sitting, I think those are the things yeah. where yeah. we reconnect not only with uh, our own innermost kind of our body and our and, our, and the, 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 fu- the fundaments of our mind, but also with the earth, like the, ryth- the rhythms yes. and timbres of the non-human. Um, at the end of that Arcade Fire song, the narrator says, like a patient on a table, I'm going to walk again, I'm going to move mm. through the pain. And he's determined to get out of this digital space that he's now trapped in. And um, so, and and then William James, for me, offers a key, one of the keys to getting out of this. Um, learning to walk again, I wrote, uh, and most importantly in the song, to wait again, requires us to embrace those intolerable intervals that a binary apprehension of reality allows us to overlook. It asks us to navigate the world as though it had just come into being, consciously choosing each step, moving with bated breath in the soft but steady light of strange new constellations. As William James says, the trick is to, quote, put yourself in the making by a stroke of intuitive sympathy for the flow of events of which you are part. Intuitive sympathy demands that we give up our sense of discreteness, of being closed egos hovering in a binary cloud of static things or its in order to make ourselves continuous with an incomputable torrent of things in the making. This means going analog and living analogically, even in a wired world. So just in case people think the point of the essay is to kind of ex-nay the whole idea of technology, it's not that. It's to realize that even your most fucking digital device, even your the latest iPhone, is at bottom an analog thing. Mm-hmm. It exists in an analog universe. Yep. And it will fall apart and rot like everything else. And that's the level that we need to, I think that we need to reconnect with at least partially, at least part of the time, if we are to find ways out of the ruts we're stuck in, yep. uh, ideologically speaking, the yep. the channels we're moving down against our own volition, we're really headed for disaster on this planet. And it seems to me that only a kind of uh, rebirth uh, or restoration of this consciousness, it's not so much that we need a new consciousness, we just need consciousness yeah (laughs) (laughs) and um that might just do the trick to reconnect us with the rhythms and rhythms and timbres of of the non-human i love that line from the arcade fire song which i don't know Uh, i'll listen to it when we're done here i'm gonna learn to walk again and what's what's the whole line again something about pain working through the pain like a patient on a table i'm gonna walk again gonna move through the pain gonna move through the pain Tolerable intervals. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. And uh, like what we're talking about, it's just sort of like, I, I feel like a lot of the time when people talk about like mindfulness, you know, which has become right. such a lavender pastel word, um, much beloved of our neoliberal overlords who would love us to, uh, we peons to meditate in the break room so that we uh, enhance our productivity. Um, but, you know, the thing that gets lost in that is that sometimes that gnosis of reality revealed like in mindfulness or just walking around or or in art or anything that connects us with the real, that could be a dark gnosis. It could be a dark awakening to steal Matt Carden's title. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning to walk again, you might have to fight through the pain a lot, which I had to do when I broke my leg in 2016. Again, another right. thing that happened in 2016. Learning to walk again is fucking painful when you haven't been able to walk. And so too it is with, you know, reconnection with the real. It's not all fun and games. 
as as stranger things make stranger things makes amply clear the analogical world is dangerous yep. it's a world with other entities in it it's a world in which the human is not central whereas the digital world is a world where the human is central the human decides what is what yep. but the very verb is stops making sense in the upside down yep. nothing is anything everything's turning into something else everything's becoming and um that's why at the end of the essay, that's where I end. It's like, it's dark. It's really dark. A lawless universe where the, the worst horrors are possible can also make possible the most beautiful things. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I was yesterday, Leslie and I were talking stoned and she was talking about how <laughs> she's, she's been spending hours awake at night going through possible, horrible things that could happen to our family and just rehearsing oh, in her man. head what she would do. Her her one scenario that keeps coming back is of she uh, she drives off a bridge and like lands in water with the girls in the car yeah. and the, the car is sinking and what does she do and how does she try to unbuckle them and get them out of the car and our tendency as moderns is it, this is strange it's, it shows the the weird superstition of being modern it's, we tend to think that this stuff doesn't happen to you know, this stuff doesn't happen to me whereas traditional cultures seem to always drive i mean one thing that you learn in traditional kind of orthodox religious practice is that this shit happens to everybody yeah <laughs> this shit could happen to you and whatever f- metaphysical system you embrace or espouse it's going to have to account for the fact that this can happen to you there's no specialness to any individual but when you realize that such horrors are possible well in a sense you realize that the beauty the things you hold on to the things you love that your children if you wouldn't have that love if if those things weren't possible Mm. Like you, you just like it, it. It's like you need this universe of infinite possibility, which includes all the worst horrors, to have even just a little modicum of light, and and, and then from that, new things can grow. And it's like, uh, it's like you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, yeah. the, the utopian world we're sold through the digital uh, culture is a world, fine, we have this transhuman world, disease has been eliminated, aging has been eliminated, all these things have been solved. But it's like, you know, you can just quote the Matrix there, welcome, and we can come to those gates, instead of St. Peter, we'll have fucking Morpheus standing there saying, (laughs) welcome to the desert of the real, you know? There's nothing left. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder, you know, one of the things that is implied in your essay that I find really interesting and very resonant. I've, I've been talking about the HR culture that has really taken over American universities uh, in recent years. One of the things that is the hallmark of the university as it is now is what Jonathan Haidt calls safetyism. The idea that the primary virtue to be cultivated is safety. Um, and so, you know, this is where this obsessive fear of contagious ideas, ideas that might hurt us. The idea that, um, above all, students have to be safe. The campuses have to be safe spaces where they'll never encounter something that make, it makes it weird there for a second. Um, I think this kind of safetyism, this feeling that, like, we have to be safe, that we have to foreclose all possibility of what's disruptive and, and disastrous and dangerous. I think this idea is making us, um, I mean, and this is hardly an original idea, it's just making people crazy, 
you know, obviously fragilizing people. That's that point has been made many times, but like just it just makes people crazy. And I'm one of the things that comes out of your essay is how much digital devices are aiding that, that, you know, being tethered to your device to devices that are supposed to allow us to skip the intolerable intervals and live this digital life. It means that the, well, those intolerable intervals become all the more intolerable. We cling all the more tightly to our devices. And then the, that outside, what we now define as an outside, it's the return of the repressed comes back at us with redoubled force. And we can't fucking handle it. You it comes know? back as the demogorgon. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> nah, for real. Shit. I think we figured it out. I think we solved it. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.